Last Sunday, we began to look at John's account of Jesus' trial, where he was brought before the former high priest Annas and questioned about his disciples and teaching. We learned that Annas did not follow Jewish judicial protocol, that he broke several laws, that he actually violated the Lord Jesus' rights, and that the ultimate goal or end goal in this trial, alleged trial, was not to examine or establish Jesus' innocence or guilt per se, but to create an illusion of due process, to create a veneer of legality to cover his murder. During questioning, Jesus remained, or he reminded this sort of kangaroo court, this false court, of how the Jewish legal system actually works. And he, by doing this, he confounded Annas. He confounded Annas's officials, and he even humiliated him, in a sense. And Annas finally gave up and did what most people do when they can't get their way or they're confounded or refuted. They send that problem to someone else. And he did that. He sent Jesus to Caiaphas, his son-in-law, who was the active high priest at that time. Annas was a former high priest. And John does not provide much detail about Caiaphas. Uh, We know that he was the active high priest during this time. We see that in verse 13. And uh, we know that um, during a previous session of court at the Sanhedrin, Caiaphas had led the Sanhedrin, which is really the Jewish Supreme Court back then, led that whole body of of men, it's 71 in total, he led them to conclude that Jesus had to die. And we see that in verse 14, it's repeated there in verse 14, and then originally we see it back in chapter 11, uh, verses 47 through 51. History does provide us with some detail about Caiaphas, his full name was Joseph Caiaphas, So if your name is Joseph, repent. I'm just kidding. It's a great name. Um, Joseph Caiaphas was this man's name. And that's interesting because they didn't typically have last names. So I don't know what the connection is there. I don't think he was from a place called Caiaphas. I think it was his last name. Uh, But in any case, he had been appointed to the high priest role by Pilate's predecessor, Gratus. That was the former Roman governor before Pilate or Pilate, however you want to put it. And uh, his tenure as high priest was actually longer than that of Annas or just about anyone else. Uh, he, he served for, for many, many years in that role, and that was kind of extraordinary because they didn't last more than five to seven years usually. And John says absolutely nothing about what transpired at Caiaphas's place, uh, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke do give us some details. And uh, I'm going to give you a few details here from their gospel accounts, or at least from Matthew. That way it gives us a better segue into our text. Uh, Mark's account is almost identical to Matthew's account of this. Luke's is similar but highly abbreviated. It's one paragraph. According to Matthew 26, verse 57 through 68, members of the Sanhedrin had assembled at Caiaphas's house. And when Jesus arrived, Caiaphas questioned him before this council. And, and they actually called many false witnesses to, 
testify against the Lord, but none of what they said lined up. One guy would contradict another, and it was just a big mess. And yet Jesus remained completely quiet during the entire thing. At one point, two witnesses stepped forward and cited a statement by Jesus where he talked about destroying and rebuilding the temple in three days. And uh, he was obviously not referring to the physical temple, although it would be destroyed later, and he prophesied that. Uh, But he was actually referring to his own body, his own physical body, this temple, being killed and resurrected. Uh, But the witnesses made it sound like he was you know, either boasting about his divinity or divine powers, uh, maybe potentially that he was some sort of insurrectionist that was planning to blow up the temple like a terror attack or something of that nature. These witnesses just twisted up Jesus' words, and at that point Caiaphas seizes an opportunity there, and he begins to grill Jesus on his claims. And he says, I adjure you by the living God... Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God, verse 63 of that Matthew text, Matthew 26. And the Lord replied, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, verse 64. And Caiaphas then tears his robe open He yells blasphemy, and he asks the council to render a verdict, and they replied, he deserves death, verse 66. Then they spit in Jesus' face and struck him, and some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you, verses 67 and 68. And this, this is what transpired early in the morning, or that evening, late, late, late that evening. This is what transpired at Caiaphas' place. This is the part that John has left out. Now, we return to John's account, and we pick up where we left off last Sunday. Please turn to John chapter 18. Our text for this morning will be verses 28 through 40. And it is very loaded. There's a lot going on here. And I have a massive script. So... Run over to McDonald's, get a McMuffin, come back. I'm hoping that I can get through this in a timely manner, but there is a lot going on here. A lot going on here. We're going to pick it up at verse 28a. I'll just read it and then give you the commentary. That's how we do it here. We read, and I provide you with commentary, and we just keep going, and then we bring it all together at the end. Verse 28a, this is what happens next according to John's account. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning, he says. The place in which a Roman governor stayed at during his visits to certain provinces was called the governor's headquarters, according to the ESV, or the Praetorium, according to other translations. It was actually called the Praetorium, a Greek phrase, Any building in a particular city could be selected and given this special purpose and designation. So you don't want to think of the Praetorium as a particular building. The Praetorium is wherever the governor stays. It could be in this building, it could be in that building, it could be in this town. Wherever he goes, wherever he stays, that's the Praetorium. In most cases, Rome would 
choose the finest and most luxurious places in these cities for their governors. They would take a really high-end building, Trump Tower or something of that nature, and say, that's going to be the praetorium while he's in town. And then he, they would commandeer that whole building, and he would take over it. Of course, there was nothing like Trump's Tower then, but it was significant that they would take. And if you lived in this building, you were displaced. You have to go while this serves as a praetorium. In Jerusalem, which is where this transpired, the praetorium was likely established at Fort Antonius or at Herod's palace. So imagine having a palace. You're the king over Judea, and you have a palace in Jerusalem, and then a Roman governor, whom you don't care for because you don't like Romans if you're Jewish, takes over your palace and turns it into his place of staying. And it was probably there or at Fort Antonius. Pilate had a full-time residence, but it was in Caesarea, and that was up north a little bit, right on the Sea of Galilee, or really a lake, if you want to call it that. After leaving Caiaphas's home, Jesus was brought to this place, to the Praetorium, and John tells us that it was early in the morning. In Greek, this phrase refers to the fourth watch, which would be about 3 to 6 a.m., so that's really early for some of us, me. Uh, usually 7 a.m. is early for me. Uh, and they're thinking, wow, he's a lazy pastor who sleeps all day. Uh, no, but uh, that's early. That's like fishing time, right? That's when you get up to go fishing. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. So that's the fourth watch, and, and that's what John means here. Roman officials usually began their duties at dawn, and then they would wrap up all of their, you know, everything that they had to do. They would wrap those things up by late morning. So you talk about banker's hours there. They would get up when the sun comes up. They'd work for several hours. And then by 9, 10 in the morning, that was it. They were done for the day. And so being that Roman officials worked, started their work this early, it's not abnormal or weird for the religious leaders to bring Jesus to the praetorium at this time. In fact, this is about the time when the Roman governor would begin to hear cases and these sorts of things and judge matters. So this is not abnormal or weird. Oh, they took him there really early in the morning. That's weird. No, this is normal. No big deal. Totally normal. And I'll tell you, there was, however, a bit of strategy being employed here by the religious leaders. Uh, they, in other words, they took Jesus there this early for purpose. They had an idea behind what they were doing. And what they were hoping to do is to have Pilate simply put his stamp of approval on Jesus' execution and then carry it out before thousands and thousands of people entered the streets for the festivities. This happened during Passover. So uh, there's a strategy here. If we can get him in there early, we can get his stamp of approval, we can get him executed. He, he could be up on Golgotha before people wake up. That's what they're thinking. And that's why they brought him so early. Now let's move to 28b. Speaking of the religious leaders, they themselves, <laughs> they themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. This is, uh, this is just, I, I love the fact that John's included this detail. When the religious leaders arrived at the praetorium, they would not enter the facility because they were afraid of becoming defiled and, and then 
unable to participate in the the big meal that was going to take place later that evening, the Passover meal. And the defilement in view here may have been contamination from a dead body, which would render a Jew unclean for seven days. The Jews believed that Gentiles did not properly dispose of dead bodies, so the Mishnah, that's their oral traditions, declared all Gentile homes, any Gentile residents, to to be unclean. So the idea here is that, hey guys, we can't go in because there may have been a dead body here at one point, and that's interesting because the Praetorium was not a physical location. This was the Herod's palace, more than likely. But in any case, they're worried about coming in contact with something dead or something where a dead body may have laid at one point. I, I don't get it, but that's what they're worried about. And plus the Mishnah says, don't go into any Gentile places. But what I actually find truly disturbing here is how the religious leaders, these are, these are the religious leaders of Israel at this time. I mean, just mind-blowing of how they were mindful of this tradition and, and extremely cautious not to violate it, but completely oblivious and blind to the weightier matters of the law and completely blind to their own sin. They were about to commit a capital offense. Murder! And yet they were concerned about defilement and being unable to eat supper later that day. I mean, these guys were classic legalists. How many of you know what a legalist is? Three people. Here we go. Legalists are people who add to or subtract from the law, but usually add to. Uh, and, And that's the thought here, but... Really, what I want to go after is the mentality of the legalist. A legalist is basically unable to see their own violations of God's law. So a legalist isn't one who just adds to or subtracts from God's word. It's a person who claims to be a believer, and yet they're kind of aloof and absent-minded and can't see their own sins. And when their own sins or violations of God's law are exposed, they classically, very classically, become obstinate or even deflective. You've all met someone where you were like, came to them in love and mentioned something, and they immediately deflected and started talking about all your shortcomings. That's a classic move by a legalist. Yeah, but what about you? You know, they don't want to own their own stuff. And legalists are are literally experts at, at pointing out the sins of others and yet totally oblivious to their own. They are corrective, but in their minds, above correction. And ultimately, they are hypocrites. They can't even follow their own rules and regulations. They can't follow their own traditions, and yet they pound and hammer people that can't. Listen to these comments on verse 28b by MacArthur and J.C. Ryle. MacArthur said, illustrative of the twisted devotion of religious legalists, the Jewish leaders expected to please God through their legalism, expressed in physical separation from a Gentile house, while at the same time illegally murdering God's son. (laughs) 
they fastidiously avoided any superficial ceremonial defilement, but cared nothing about the profound moral defilement they incurred from rejecting and condemning the Holy Son of God to death. J.C. Ryle backs it up. Actually, MacArthur was backing him because Ryle was around a lot earlier than him. He says, we are told that the Jews who brought Christ before Pilate would not go into the judgment hall lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. That was scrupulosity indeed, exclamation point. These hardened men were actually engaged in doing the wickedest act that mortal men ever did. They wanted to kill their own Messiah, and yet at this very time they talked of being defiled and were very fastidious about the Passover, exclamation point. So it's, it's very interesting that these guys are seeking to murder the Lord. They've been wanting to do this, do this for a long time. They were prevented because it was not the Lord's time. They, bare minimum, were killing Christ in their hearts, because that's where murder begins. That's where hatred is. And yet, they're worried about, well, we can't go into this guy's house because we might get defiled and not be able to eat. And they were actually planning to kill the true, true Passover lamb, Jesus, but not for good reasons. So it's amazing how the legalist thinks, and that's what these guys are. So imagine they're all standing outside there, and they're demanding that Pilate come out to them because they won't go in, and yet they want to kill the Lord. 29 through 30, verses 29 through 30. We continue, it says, So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If, <laughs> if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. What an answer. Since they would not go inside to speak to Pilate, he had to come out to them, and I'm sure he wasn't happy about that. And I think they were probably standing in the courtyard of the praetorium because that was not, you know, uh, that was not forbidden by the Mishnah, their tradition. They could stand in the courtyard. They just couldn't cross the threshold and go inside. So they're standing out there, and Pilate comes out to them. And Pilate comes out and asks the simplest of questions. What charge or accusation are you bringing against this man? In other words, what did he allegedly do? You've brought him here. You've gotten me out of my quarters. What's going on? What did this guy allegedly do? And notice how they, the religious leaders, didn't state any charges. Do you see them reciting any sort of charge there? No, instead they replied sarcastically, and this set Pilate off. I mean, you, you've brought him, he's drinking his Folgers. You've brought him out into a, a cool, quiet, uh, cold, courtyard. He's probably in a robe. I don't know. Hopefully he was fully dressed. He comes out. He's already annoyed. He knows the Jews are uh, you know, fanatical, very zealous, very annoying with their religion. And the first thing they say is, you think we're wasting our time by coming down here? We wouldn't have come down here if we didn't have something very, very serious about this guy. We're not in the business of wasting our time. This is what they say to him. It's a, a, a very disrespectful, sarcastic, condescending, patronizing thing that they say to him here. And, and I'm a bit surprised 
by their brazenness because Pilate was not the kind of person you messed with. I'm just, it, I don't know if it's their pride or what's going on with these guys, but for them to speak to someone with, with the power of the sword and already an inner distaste for the Jewish people, it's just astonishing to me that they would do this. I mean, Pilate was known for his insensitivity and brutality. He had a reputation as, a, as being a cruel guy. Well, eagle's plug there. He deliberately reversed a policy. When he first came into power, there was a policy in place and he, of his predecessors, and he deliberately reversed it. And that policy prohibited Roman soldiers from marching through the streets of Jerusalem with standards bearing images that the Jews saw or thought of as idolatrous. You know how they marched around with the sticks with the flag on it or whatever, and When they first did this, when they came into Jerusalem, the Jews exploded over it. Well, they're marching into town with idols on these poles. We can't have that in Jerusalem. There are conquered people. We can't have that in our holy city. And so uh, the guys who came before him put a rule in place where you couldn't do this. Well, the first thing he does is reverse it. We're going to be marching all up and down McHenry with standards with idols. Woo-hoo! And this just caused the people to erupt. And they began to protest, and, and you know what he did? He, he, he didn't at first, he did reverse his decision, because I think after a while it was just too much trouble. But at first he didn't reverse his decision. He started to say, if I see you protesting, I will kill you. If you protest, we will kill you on the streets. He threatened them with pain of death. And when they persisted, he did beat and kill them in the streets. Long before 70 A.D., there was a lot of blood in the streets of Jerusalem, and some of it was shed by this man, Pilate. At one point, he forced the temple treasury to fund an expensive building project, an aqueduct that would carry water into Jerusalem, and this caused another eruption. It infuriated the religious leaders. It infuriated the Sanhedrin, and I don't think it's because there was some kind of a moral thing here. They were sifting money out of the temple treasury to load their pockets. They were the Benny Hins, the Joel Osteens of that day. And, and, but this, you know, totally fired them up. It got the religious leaders in a, in a big situation. It was terrible. He's stealing money from our temple. And he did all of that to build this aqueduct. His bloodiest act was, however, not committed against the Jews, but against the Samaritans, the people just north. Um, He sent Roman soldiers to Mount Gerizim. That was their place of, the Samaritans' place of worship. Uh, He sent soldiers to Gerizim to attack a treasure-hunting group of Samaritans who believed that Moses had stashed golden objects on its summit. You know, this is way back, and they thought, well, he hid those things up on our mountain, so he, he never actually did that, but they believed it, and they were up there, you know, doing an Indiana Jones, dun, 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 dun. they were up there trying to find the treasure, and Pilate sent soldiers up there and slaughtered them all, killed them with the sword, wasted them, destroyed them. I don't know if he was after the gold that was allegedly there or whatever, and, and by the way, that was not even under his jurisdiction. That wasn't even under his territory, that particular area where this transpired. And what happened was the Samaritans complained about Pilate's brutality to his superior, and his superior removed him from office and sent him to Rome to be judged by Emperor Tiberius. But as Pilate was en route, Tiberius died 
and history falls right off right there. We don't know what happened to Pilate. Some say he committed suicide. There's many things that are said about him. The idea here is this is not the guy you mess with. He's a brutal, brutal, brutal man. He will kill you. He will. And he was part of, I mean, he gave the order to kill Jesus, did he not? Lastly, I want you to notice the blasphemous statement the religious leaders made against our perfect Lord in verse 30. Did you pick up on that as we first read it? They called him an evildoer. You see that? may say it a little differently in your translation if you're not quite up to par in using the ESV. Maybe you're using the NASB, which is it's okay. The truth is, Jesus, and this is the truth, Jesus committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. And this is the testimony of the person who was closest to him, Peter. We read that in 1 Peter 2.22. Peter never witnessed Jesus' sin. He never witnessed any deceit, anything in him, anything unholy. And so this, this statement is false. It's a lie. It's blasphemy. You must understand that sin and Satan twist and contort the minds of unbelievers to the point where they see good as evil and evil as good. This is happening in our nation today. You know, sin is celebrated. It's just, it's publicly celebrated, you know, from, from abortion to sexual immorality, homosexuality, fornication. These things are celebrated. And on account of these things and many others, the wrath of God is coming. Colossians 3, 5, and 6. On account of these things. It's pretty mind-blowing. Now let's look at Pilate's response to the religious leader's sarcastic, patronizing statement in 31a. Pilate is not happy. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. (laughs) Stung by their disrespectful, condescending treatment of him, Pilate fired back. You just take him and judge him yourself. You don't need to waste my time with this. You've got this charge. You're the experts. You want to treat me like garbage, you can just go take care of it. This was Pilate's way of initially denying their request. What you see here in his statement in 31a is, I don't want to be part of this. That's what he's saying. I'm not trying to paint him as a good guy. He's not a good guy. But he doesn't want to be a part of this. and He doesn't like being disrespected. He actually knew why they were there before they even got there. He knew they wanted him to execute Jesus for them, but he was not going to tolerate their disrespect nor meet their demand unless they presented legitimate charges and evidence that warranted capital punishment. You see, the religious leaders had laws, but they didn't follow them. Pilate had laws, but he actually tried to follow them. A Gentile, outside of the fold of God. It's amazing. He, he knew, and Pilate had the upper hand, he knew that they were dependent on him because of a technicality. Historical sources tell us that Rome removed from the nations they ruled over the right to exercise capital punishment in either 6 AD or 30 AD. Pilate clearly had the upper hand. Without his consent, without his 
resources, without his execution machine, the religious leaders would not be able to proceed. In some instances, Rome did permit the Jews to put to death a person right on the spot without any sort of trial or consent from the Romans. If a Gentile entered restricted areas at the temple complex, they could be stoned to death right outside the temple court. Or if a person blasphemed God, was noticed doing that. You know, today everyone's taking the Lord's name in vain. If you did something like that back then, you were killed on the spot. Not always, but in some cases. You did that, you could be immediately put to death without any sort of Roman consent. And you think of Stephen, the very first Christian martyr. He didn't blaspheme, he preached the truth. And the blasphemers killed him for it because they didn't have a stomach for the truth. But do you recall in that instance, in that story, in that piece of history, them going to Rome and getting permission? No, they took Stephen and killed him right there on the spot after he preached his fantastic sermon. So as you can see, the Jews had some right to do this if certain expectations were made on their end. And they had undoubtedly, and we see in Scripture, they had made several attempts on the Lord Jesus' life without Roman consent. But they all failed because, as I said earlier, his time had not yet come. At this point, Jesus had grown in such popularity. Remember, just on Sunday, we're we're looking at Friday now, on the previous Sunday, he was hailed as king. Hosanna, Hosanna. He rode in on a donkey, on a a donkey's colt, and and, and the, the whole town exploded and thought their Messiah had come. They were laying down palm branches and their robes and crying, Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, these sorts of things. Remember? So he was very, very popular at this moment. And frankly, the religious leaders were no longer, because of that, they were no longer willing to arrest him in public, let alone kill him, for they feared an uprising. Matthew 26, verses 4 and 5. For this reason, they had become dependent on Governor Pilate. Without him, they could not proceed with their evil plan to kill the Lord. Pilate knew this. And so did the religious leaders. Now look at 31b. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So the religious leaders acknowledged their reliance on Pilate right here in this very sentence. It was as if they had said, We cannot take Jesus and judge him according to our law because Rome removed our right to enforce capital punishment. That's in a sense what they're saying. Pilate must have been elated upon hearing this. The religious leaders, you know, always maintained a sense of superiority over everyone. And they had here in this instance disrespected the most powerful man in Jerusalem, the Roman governor. And, but Pilate's quick, sharp reply forced them to capitulate and submit to his authority. He was elated. At this precise moment, something very marvelous happened. Look at verse 32. This was to fulfill the, Lord that, uh, the word that the Lord Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. During his ministry, Jesus had prophesied about his death. He told his disciples, 
We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be, listen, delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise, right? Mark 10, 33 through 34. This particular word, this prophecy, part of it at least, was fulfilled at the Praetorium early that morning when the religious leaders in Pilate were discussing what to do with Jesus, how to kill him or the nature of his death. The idea that he's been handed over to the religious leaders by the temple police, the idea that he's now being handed over to a Gentile, there is the fulfillment of that prophecy right before our very eyes. And by the way, this is one more way that John is What is the goal of his gospel? To present and prove the deity and messiahship of Jesus by showing these fulfilled prophecies that the Lord himself had uttered and said. That was one way he was bolstering that claim that he is indeed God and Messiah. And by the way, he also uses in this very text the innocence of Jesus to establish, bolster, and affirm his deity and messiahship. And we'll see that in a little while. Verse 33, I mean, you just see the, the omniscience of the Lord, right? That is, a, that is a characteristic, that is an ability that only God has to know all things, and you see that so clearly in 32. Now 33, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate leaves the courtyard and he takes Jesus into the praetorium to question him, unlike the Religious leaders, Jesus did not protest and complain about Gentile defilement. He goes right in with Pilate. He was fine with entering Pilate's residence, not because he knew he would soon die and nothing really mattered at this point like Jesus was some kind of fatalist. He didn't care because he did not adhere to the man-made traditions of the religious leaders and not entering a Gentile home was a man-made tradition and that also makes them legalists. Jesus didn't, did not follow their man-made ordinances. He did, not, uh, he did not obey them. and he, I don't think he did anything to like deliberately in front of them disobey them, but he certainly did not follow those man-made ordinances. He came to fulfill the law of God, not the law of man. He understood and even taught that true defilement is internal, not external. He put it like this, A man is not defiled by what enters his mouth, but but by what comes out of his mouth, right? Matthew 15, 11. So Jesus had no problem with going in. He wasn't abiding by the religious leader's man-made laws. He didn't care about that. Pilate asks Jesus poignantly, are you the king of the Jews? Now, this suggests, or this question actually reveals the strategy that the religious leaders were using here. At Caiaphas' house, they charged Jesus with blasphemy, but when they went before Pilate, they went with something much stronger, something that would grab this Roman official's attention, something that would lead him and cause him to investigate. In other words, if they had showed up and said, he blasphemed, he would have said, goodbye, you're getting religiously fanatical again. I don't care about your blasphemy. I don't care about your religion. That's not what they came to Pilate with. These men were very, very crafty. They weren't stupid. 
Romans did not care about the Mosaic law. They did not care about the traditions of the Jews. As I said, the religious leaders were zealous fanatics to these guys. Blasphemy was a joke to the Romans, but sedition was not a joke. Sedition is a crime punishable by death, and that's what the religious leaders came with. They came and charged Jesus with sedition before Pilate. According to Luke chapter 23, verse 2, they, they said this, We found this man misleading our nation. Pilate doesn't care about that because they're referring to the nation of the Jews. He doesn't care about them. They're just tax dollars. We found this man misleading our nation. He don't care about that, but he does the next line. And forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. There it is. And even this here. And, and they also said, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So there's the two charges of sedition. He won't let us pay our taxes. We're not supposed to give anything to that idle uh, Caesar. And he himself declares himself to be a king. And you know that's illegal. But they were totally lying. They were totally lying. Jesus never misled the nation of Israel. He, he, he did not forbid the Jews from giving tribute to Caesar. He actually told them to render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar taxes, as much as I, it's hard to swallow when I, when, I, when I think of that, having to render to our government. Yes, Jesus said, render to Caesar. We need to render our taxes. I hope they stay lower. They're not. They're going high. But in any case, render to Caesar, right? Pay your taxes. Give to Caesar what belongs to him. That's not sedition. That's obedience to public government, and he, but he also said, render to God what belongs to God, right? Matthew 22, verse 21. Now, if Jesus thought of himself as the king of the Jews and claimed to be such, and he had many followers, he could be perceived as a threat to Rome, right? So this is a guy who sets himself up as king. This is what the religious leaders are saying. We know he has a ton of followers, we saw what happened on Sunday. We've seen these groups of people following him around. We heard about the feeding of thousands in, in the Decapolis and the thousands up, up above Galilee. So he could be perceived as a threat. And this is the, the narrative the religious leaders wove together for Pilate. But Pilate was not about to take their word for it. He did not trust them. He had to figure it out for himself. And this is why he took Jesus back and questioned him. Now, let's look at the Lord's answer to Pilate's question in verse 34. Uh, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? That's Jesus' reply. So, so one claim made by the religious leaders was actually true. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He, he is the king of kings, right? No doubt. So, so the Lord had to be careful in how he answered Pilate's question. He did not want to deny his kingship, but he also did not want Pilate to believe the religious leader's version of his kingship, that he was a, an insurrectionist, that he was a militaristic king who had come to depose Rome, because that's what they were saying about him to Pilate, because they knew that would work. Therefore, Jesus could not answer Pilate's question with an unqualified yes or no, without first defining what his kingship entails. 
So the idea here is that if Pilate was saying this of his own initiative, he would be asking if Jesus was a king in the political sense and hence a threat to Rome. Jesus' answer in that case would be no. He was not a king in the sense of a military or political leader. But Pilate refuses to provide the Lord with an answer, or an immediate answer at least. Instead, what he does is he fires back with a sarcastic retort of his own. Look at 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? (laughs) Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? His statement, am I a Jew, totally reflects his disdain for the Jewish people and growing exasperation of the frustrating, puzzling case before him. He was basically losing his patience here. He did not want to spend his entire morning going back and forth, right, from the courtyard to his quarters. And his second statement makes it clear that he was merely repeating the accusation of the religious leaders rather than revealing Rome's official position. It was as if he had said, your nation and religious leaders delivered you over to me for execution, but I'm not exactly sure why, because I do not yet see a crime here. That's what he's saying to Jesus. And then he asks the million-dollar question, and this is the question he should have started with, what have you done? He would have saved himself a lot of tribulation and time if he would have just asked that right up front. And Jesus' answer here is just spectacular. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Those are his words, his response. Here, the Lord describes his kingdom. It's a kingdom that's that's not of this world. It's a, a heavenly kingdom, which will one day be fully, physically manifested on earth. For now, it's a a spiritual kingdom. It exists in heaven and in the hearts of his people. If Jesus' kingdom were of this world, like all other kingdoms, like all other earthly kingdoms, he told Pilate that his servants would be fighting for his release. In other words, his servants would be at war with the Jewish and Roman authorities right now because of his capture. This is his response. It was as if he was saying, look around, Pilate. Do you see my servants, my soldiers with their swords drawn fighting for my release? No, no. You don't. And Pilate knew about Gethsemane. He he was the one who sent the the band of Roman legionnaires to arrest Jesus. The one who sent that group of at least 200 soldiers. He had, even by this time, undoubtedly, because he, he knew everything, he had to. He was a governor. He had undoubtedly heard about the assault on Malchus by one of Jesus' servants, Peter, He had heard about Jesus' rebuke of that servant, put your sword away, those who use the sword will die by the sword, right? Matthew 26, 52. And he had undoubtedly heard about the miraculous restoration of Malchus's ear. Pilate was very familiar with how Jesus and his servants operated. He he knew that he was nonviolent. He knew that he posed no threat to Rome. 
He knew that the religious leaders were lying to him, and this is why he kept questioning Jesus. What they were saying about Jesus in the courtyard did not line up. It did not make sense. Jesus had never given Pilate a reason to think that he was an insurrectionist and that uh, he was a real viable threat to Rome. Through his bold statements at the beginning and end of verse 36, Jesus basically admits to being a king, right? When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, if it's his kingdom, he must be the king of that kingdom. So when he asks Jesus, are you a king? Are you the king of the Jews? He essentially says, yes, but you must understand my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't look like yours. It doesn't look like theirs. It's vastly different. So Pilate picks up on these clues, these hints. He totally understands what Jesus is saying. Look at verse 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king, right? So you are a king. And Jesus replies, you say that I am a king. Yes, indeed, basically. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate basically responds, so it's true, as they said, you are a king. Here is my paraphrase of Jesus' answer. Yes, I am a king, just as you stated, but I am different from what they're describing. I came down from my kingdom for a purpose, to be born and to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus' words. I like what MacArthur wrote here. He says, Jesus' mission was not political but spiritual. It was to testify to the truth by proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? Matthew 4.23. Christ proclaimed the truth about God, men, sin, judgment, holiness, love, eternal life. In short, everything pertaining to life and godliness, 2 Peter 1.3. By defining, end quote, by defining his kingship and stating his specific purpose as king at that juncture to bear witness to the truth, Jesus did two things. First, he maintained his innocence and refuted the charge against him, right? He had committed, he had not committed any sort of sin. He had not committed sedition as the religious leaders were saying. I'm a king, of a kingdom, I came down, I, I preached words, I didn't come around with a sword, I didn't do any of that, I'm not trying to, trying to depose Rome, this is what he's saying, this is what's implied here, this he accomplished through his statement. Secondly, he was, in a sense, inviting Pilate to hear and obey the truth about him, the gospel. How does, or how did Pilate respond to his invitation, this gracious invitation Look at verse 38. Pilate said to him, Sure, Jesus, preach the gospel to me. I'd like to be saved. Oh, wait a minute. No, 38 doesn't say that. It says, What is truth? And then look at the note afterwards. After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. There's the verdict. Sadly, Pilate wasn't interested in hearing truth. In his mind, he had all the truth he would ever need. 
In this Greco-Roman culture, you had vast religious systems in place, Greek and Roman mythologies. Of course, I don't think they called them mythologies then. We call them that because they're insane. But you had Greek and Roman religion in place. You had a uh, pantheon of gods to worship. It was unbelievable. You stubbed your toe. I got the stubbed toe god. I mean, they had a god for everything. But these Greek and Roman, we call them mythologies, their religions, they all claimed to be truth. They were thought of as truth. You had the philosophical influences of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, the great Greek philosophers. You had their philosophical influences and ideas still in play, swirling around the culture, all claiming to be truth. The Romans thought of themselves as masters of the truth, and they rejected anything that wasn't old and ancient. They literally did. Anything new that would come along the pike, they'd be like, That's not at least 500 years old, no thanks. They wouldn't listen to anything new. Pilate figured, what could this Jesus, look at him. You're a king, look at you, look how you're dressed. What could this Jesus, and and, and being a, a man who's been rejected by his own nation, rejected by his own religious leaders, possibly teach me about truth? That's his idea, that's his thinking What would we say? We would say he could teach you the gospel, which is the only truth that saves. That's what he could teach you. After rejecting Jesus' offer, he goes back outside to the courtyard and he gave the religious leaders the verdict, I find no guilt in him. Luke 23 tells us that the religious leaders began to protest. They said, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place, verse 5. When Pilate heard this, he asked the religious leaders if Jesus was Galilean, verse 6 of Luke 23. When they answered yes, he commanded that they take Jesus to King Herod because Galilee is in his jurisdiction. <laughs> Wow, first the religious, uh, first Annas couldn't handle Jesus, so he sent him to Caiaphas. Now, now you know, uh, they take Jesus to, to Pilate, and Pilate's like, I don't want to deal with this. Take him to your king. It's just they're just all passing the situation around. Poor Jesus, walking all over town. Send him to, send him to Herod, right? It's his jurisdiction. And guess what? Herod just happened to be in Jerusalem at that time, probably for the Passover, right? Luke 23, verse 7. After Herod questions Jesus at some length, he and his soldiers, and he found nothing, he and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. After putting a fine royal robe on him, they sent him back to Pilate, verses 6 through 11. When they arrived back at the praetorium again, Pilate repeated his verdict, not guilty. Okay, so Herod couldn't figure this out. You're bringing him back to me. I already told you what I think. He's not guilty. And he also added this. Herod sent Jesus back to us because Jesus did nothing deserving of death. In other words, I'm not going to put him to death for you, but I will, however, punish and release him to you. Verses 15 through 16. At this point, the religious leaders had been joined by others, and a sizable crowd had formed in the praetorium courtyard. Verse 13 of our text, and over in Matthew 27, verse 15. Folks in this crowd, listen to what happened. Folks in this crowd began to shout, Away with this man! Take him away from us! And release to us Barabbas. Verse 18. 
Now let's look at Pilate's response in verse 39 of our text. They're yelling, give us Barabbas. Pilate is reminded of a custom and tradition they have every year. Verse 39, you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? (laughs) Oh, man. When Pilate announced that he was ready to to uphold this custom for, for them. He literally brings Jesus. He hears them yelling away with this man, give us Barabbas. He says, okay, it's time to do the custom. It's time to do the thing we promise to do every year to keep the crowds in control, uh, I, I, you know, just to, just to kind of pacify the people. We'll give them one of their own that we've held for the last year. And he brings Jesus forward as he's ready to do this. And he literally points to Jesus and said, is this the guy you want us to release to you? the king of the Jews, and he totally says this mockingly. But he was actually hoping there were supporters of Jesus in the crowd who would begin to yell, yes, give us Jesus. If there were supporters of Jesus in the crowd, maybe more supporters of Jesus than opponents, Pilate could release Jesus to them and call it a day. Right? So now he's trying to pit basically people in the crowd. He's hoping there's got to be some supporters of Jesus here. There was 25,000 of them on Sunday. They couldn't all be gone by now. And he's thinking if we could get them right to yell a little louder and maybe yell louder for Jesus against the religious leaders and the people that are with them, then I'm going to, hey, that's it. I'm going to make the decision, and I'm going to turn Jesus loose to them. You see, but what he didn't factor in was the fickleness of Jesus' alleged supporters. Uh, When the people who supported him on Sunday by hailing him king, by shouting Hosanna in the highest, by laying down palm branches on the path, when they, these same people, when they saw Jesus standing there as a prisoner of Rome in handcuffs with a, you know, beat up, bloodied face, their messianic hopes were basically dashed to pieces and they quickly turned on the Lord. The same people who were hailing him king began to shout, away with him, give us Barabbas. Look at our last verse, verse 40. The text says they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. John includes a detail. Now, Barabbas was a robber. They wanted Barabbas the robber released, not Jesus, the king of the Jews. Barabbas was also known as an insurrectionist and murderer, Luke 23, verse 25. So he's a robber, he's an insurrectionist, which means he's committed sedition, the very thing they were trying to charge Jesus with, he never had anything to do with that. Robber, insurrectionist, he had committed sedition, and he was, at the top of the list there, he was a murderer. And the idea there is that he had assassinated Roman officials. He was a zealot. He was a terrorist. And I think the crowd may have figured since Jesus failed to deliver them from the Romans like they had strongly anticipated, well, maybe Barabbas was their best bet after all. And so they began to shout for him all the louder. Closing. Jesus did not come to deliver his people from earthly enemies. He came to deliver 
them from the wages of sin, which is death. Deliver them from the law of God. Deliver them from the wrath of God. Deliver them from, oh, you know, from the world, from the devil. And he came to give a, a full, comprehensive spiritual deliverance. And he secured this deliverance through his perfect life, through his sacrificial death, through his account-settling burial, and through his sin, Satan, death, and hell totally destroying resurrection. And those who repent and believe in his person and finished work are his people, and they experience this great comprehensive deliverance. And when Jesus returns, he will deliver his people from earthly enemies. He will establish his kingdom here on earth, a physical kingdom. He will establish his physical throne here on earth. He will establish his physical reign on earth. And all enemies shall be made a footstool for his feet. And his people, along with him, shall reign over the nations. Back in verse 36, we want to pay close attention to Jesus' statement. He said, My kingdom is not of this world. You see, this is not merely a testimony, not merely a statement of fact, but a call for his people to live as kingdom people now. You see, 2,000 years ago when Jesus came, his kingdom was not of this world. 2,000 years later, it's not of this world. It will be manifested on this world, but it's not of this world in the sense that it's not fully here physically. It hasn't fully come yet, and it is thoroughly unlike the kingdoms of this world. But this is not just a statement of fact. It is a a command, an exhortation for those who are in Christ to live as kingdom people. Now, to live innocent blameless lives before others, to be above reproach before men. When Pilate examined Jesus, he found nothing, not a hint of sin, not a hint of sedition, not a hint of wrongdoing. Verse 38, if we were to be examined, what would they find? What would they find? Maybe nothing, because some of us are pretty good at hiding our sin, right? I could be a master of that. I could be the David Copperfield of hiding sin, or the Chris Angel, I think, would be more contemporary. What would they find? Maybe nothing, because we're good at hiding it. But have we forgotten that nothing is hidden from the omniscient eyes of our Lord? That he sees everyone and everything all the time? That nothing, literally nothing, escapes his sight? Proverbs 15.3, Hebrews 4.13. I believe the Holy Spirit is now examining each of us. What is he finding? Unbelief? Sexual immorality, 
anger, hatred, gossip, profanity, dishonesty, worldliness, failure to live as a kingdom person. You see, the invitation Jesus issued to Pilate is being issued to us. Will we listen to the truth, to the gospel, and be delivered? Or will we sarcastically reply, what is truth? And reject his kind, his kind, immensely kind and gracious offer of eternal life for those who are not yet in Christ by grace through faith or for the rest of us who are his kind and gracious offer to confess and repent and to be restored to the sweet fellowship that we had prior to getting ourselves entangled with sin? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you this morning? Listen to his voice. Obey his instruction. Submit to him. Confess, repent, be restored. And as I said, for some of you, it might be the very first time you've ever done this. You, you would need to believe. You need to believe. And this is an act and work of God in your heart if you do this. But believe that, that Jesus lived for your righteousness. In other words, you don't have righteousness. All of your best deeds amount to a hill of dung before God. Last night I was at a wedding and I kept, when they got to the speeches, and I don't know if these people were believers, I don't think they were. It wasn't the drunkenness that set me off at the end of the night. That was one sign. But one of the things that was even more concerning was the focus of what was being said during the speeches. And I kept hearing this theme of the groom is a good person. The groom is a good person. His wife is a good person. The father-in-law is a good person. All night, good person, good person. I'm like, there's no one good. Well, that DJ, we'll never hire him again. You know? I mean, at one point I was just like, oh, oh my goodness, the Isaiah passage was about to boil out of me. There are no good people. Not according to God's standards. God judges according to perfect righteousness. And none of us have reached that bar. It's an impossibility. But Christ blew the bar to pieces. He, he obeyed the law. He alone perfectly, perfectly. And when we trust in him alone, that righteousness that he earned goes to our account and our sin goes to his. He bore our sin on the tree that we might become the righteousness of God. So, so we believe that he lived for our righteousness. We believe that he died for our sin. All of it, all of our sin, our worst sins. Some of us in this room, and, and me in particular, have, have done some things that are just, really? Wow, how could God forgive that? Christ died for that sin. Your worst sin was absorbed on the cross. Christ took it. We believe he, he earned our righteousness. We believe that he died for our sins, our worst sins. We believe that he was buried in a tomb 
And somehow something spiritual happens there, not just the idea of taking the keys away from the devil of, of, of death and Hades or, 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 or of, of hell, the keys to hell, not just that, but there's an settling that happens there where the account of the believer is settled before God. And we don't stop there. You must believe that he rose on the third day victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell. Not just for Pastor Phil, not just for Bernie, not just for John in the back, but for you, for you, for you.